This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Ashley Howes, welcome to Viral Jesus. What is really interesting about social media is that it gives us the illusion that we are not bodies and places and time, right? It gives us the sense that we can be everywhere, like we can be God. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. Princeton social psychologists conducted an experiment in the 1970s based on the parable of the Good Samaritan by asking seminary students to write and deliver a sermon that would take place across campus. But what they really wanted to see was how likely these students would be to actually live out the parable of the Good Samaritan in their real lives. So as the students finalized their preparation, the researchers implemented a constraint to see how the seminarians would respond. The students were told right before before walking across campus that they were either late, so they'd better hurry, or that the assistant was ready for them, or that they would arrive a few minutes early. Now, as the students are walking across campus, they encounter an actual victim. It's somebody who's slouched over. They look like kind of the wounded traveler in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Of course, this is a plant, but they're looking destitute and in need of help and assistance. They wanted to know what would the seminarians do? Well, only 10% of the seminarians that were in the high hurry situation, they were told, you're going to be late, you better hurry. Only 10% of those people stopped to help the victim. While 63% of students in the low hurry group who were told, you're going to get there a little bit early, stopped to help the victim. So my question for you to think about today is, what if it isn't that we are all just bad people who don't care about each other? What if we are all actually really hurried people who feel like we don't have time to stop and see each other? Our guest today is someone who is committed to slowing down, to being present and living a spacious life, Ashley Hales. Ashley Hales holds a PhD in English. She's a writer, speaker, and the host of the Finding Holy podcast. Her writing has been featured in places like Christianity Today, Folks and Culture, and the Gospel Coalition. She is the author of Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. And her latest book is A Spacious Life, Trading Hustle and Hurry for the Goodness of Limits. So I like to open by reading to my guests something that they've posted online after I have scoured and searched their social media accounts. And I went to your Instagram, Ashley, and here's what I found. You say this. The thing about seasons is that we don't know that what we are doing now will be needed for later. We trust in the you reap what you sow, but the sowing often feels so ordinary. It's easy to let those things slide. Here's what I know. A spacious life never comes accidentally or when you suddenly reach some spiritual milestone. It can't be conjured up, but you can till the soil. 
You can invest in life-giving rhythms. You can read even the boring parts of scripture. You can pray and go to church even when you don't feel anything. You can turn off screens and rest. You can take a Sabbath. You can go for a walk and connect with people you love. You can ask questions of people who think differently than you and seek to know and love another human. You can look up and be astonished. These are tilling times. I'm ending the quote there, but I thought this was, first of all, a little showcase of just what a fantastic writer you are. Um, But also, I, I really liked the picture that you paint there of these words. These are tilling times. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, I think we have such this narrative, right? And I think social media just exacerbates this narrative that like, it's kind of, you know, we talk about Instagram, like our highlight reel and Twitter is like, let's talk about how, you know, witty I can be and either yeah. you know, take down pieces or what or what have you. Right. And we, we tend to neglect the ordinary as the place where God meets us. And we tend to kind of denigrate the ordinary, our ordinary spiritual disciplines, um, or even showing up in those places in ordinary ways, because we don't think that that is actually where change happens. We're kind of waiting for something splashy and spectacular often. So talk to me about what it looks like. What does that look like practically for somebody listening about how they can show up to their life in the ordinary killing mm-hmm. times mm-hmm. of life? Well, one thing um, I really have encouraged folks who have read my book, A Spacious Life, is to make a delight list because there is an invitation. There's a chapter all in delight and how Jesus actually delighted in his father. And so part of being human, part of being limited is not just like, wah, wah, I have to deal with my suffering, but also like to actually engage those kind of weak delight muscles. And so I think sometimes... Even tilling doesn't always look like discipline. Sometimes it's finding where does the delight and the discipline overlap um, in our lives. I think often we think maybe as Christians that like God wants us to just be like sober and serious all the time. Um, But maybe, you know, he also invites us to delight. And so I encourage folks to maybe spend some time writing a delight list. What things bring you delight Maybe reach back even into your childhood to remember, what did I love to do? What made me feel like me? And then how can you kind of turn that so that you're relating to God and to other people through that and not just filling yourself up? What's on your delight list? Reading. If I can take a bubble bath in the evening and bring a good book and have a cup of tea, I feel like I'm pretty, pretty excited. Um, And definitely good meals around tables with good friends and good conversation is something that is extremely delightful for me. So going on walks though, are just something that I do, um, try to look around at my surroundings. That becomes a time of prayer and contemplation and just moving my body so I can get out of my head. So some of those sorts of things find, bring me a lot of delight. And then I'm also trying to push myself with my kids, their elementary school, middle school, and to figure out like, okay, how can I join in their delight instead of simply Mm. like making them like they don't want to sit and read. They want to go play. So, you know, how can I play with them is is sometimes more of a discipline than, you know, but it's still an invitation. I read a book last fall. I think it was by David Rico and it's called Daring to Trust. And something he says in that book is that we actually decide we trust people Mm. who share in our joy. Mm. 
That's good. And so what you're talking about, finding moments with your kids to join in their delight is how they then in turn say, okay, I can trust this person, mm. which blew my mind. That's I never fabulous. Yeah, I'm gonna... Trust is a part of that. Yeah. Talk to us about your book. It's yep. called A Spacious Life, Trading Hustle and Hurry for the Goodness of Limits. What led you to that title? What, what was this writing process like for you? Yeah, I think some of our best books come out in anger, you know, that we're, we're frustrated with ourselves or the world. Um, and I think I had two frustrations. One was as a young mom, particularly, I was really frustrated at God at the gap between my imagined life and my actual one. And so Mm. I think I thought we could like file our children away in like a filing cabinet and they could just like slot into our, our life (laughs) and my (laughs) dreams and aspirations. Um, and of course, um, as most parents know, having children completely changes you um, in so many good life-giving ways. And, um, but I think there was part of me that said, you know, this American dream of productivity and efficiency that I desperately wanted, I couldn't have. Mm -hmm, Um, And mm -hmm. so that was a, a real growing time. And then the second kind of point of anger is, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated that there's so many books published by Christian publishers, you know, that really aren't asking us to go deeper and, Mm. you know, that they are kind of parroting um, a mainstream idea of like, you do you and just look inside yourself and, you know, whatever you find there, your job is to like express that out in society and everyone needs to say yay. And that's what a good life looks like. Um, But really the pattern of Jesus's life went towards the cross. Um, And yes, it went through resurrection, but um, it was as I was meditating just on the life of Christ and saying he was human, right? So he had a body. And so he was in a particular place and time with particular constraints. And as I looked at his life, just realizing limits are actually a way that we love, right? And, and that Jesus is actually invited, you know, he shows us the pattern of life and that he because he limited himself for the sake of love, he shows us that actually loving people looks like living with constraints, right? To love them appropriately and fully and well. It's like me choosing to like play Nerf gun war with my boys or something, right? Like, I don't really want to do that, but it's not about me. (laughs) So I have to ask you, do people in your life feel like you're not living with it all. With the, you have a PhD, you're teaching you, write books, you have a family. Are there people around you who are like thinking you haven't achieved all of that? Right. Yeah. No, I think a lot of it is like my own internal journey. Um, even when launching the book, I'm like, I can't ask the launch team to like hustle and hurry it. <laughs> like, please hustle <laughs> for my book. You know, like this is so counterintuitive. Um yeah, I mean, what's hard is, yeah, when you look at my life, maybe it looks a little bit more non-average. Um, not, I know, think like, quite I, non-average. <laughs> However, I totally, I know what you mean, because I think part of the problem is off, all that happens often is like, as you reach your dreams, is you just keep moving the goalposts, right? right so right. what happens is you just have different people to look at. You're like, well, I'm right. definitely not there. However, right. yeah. perspective says, I think most people would look at you and say, that's, I mean, my goodness, if I could just do what Ashley's doing. Right. That's when yeah. I'll know God's hand is actually with me. Right. <laughs> right. So I right. think it's important for them to hear even Ashley say, actually, you know what? I still struggle too. Right. Right. And a lot of it, I think, is, 
you know, to what extent are we looking at whatever accolades we've achieved as something that really dictates our worth, right? Instead of like the bedrock love of God that we are learning how to live in and live among and share day by day. Talk to me about the academic journey for you and what made you decide, when did you decide that you wanted to pursue a PhD? Yeah. So probably like junior high. No, um, I like, I loved diagramming sentences in junior high. And so I was like, I really like English and I've always loved reading. Um, and, and I loved, um, my undergrad classes and I was like, if I could just read books and get paid to read books, then my life would be complete. (laughs) Um, so really after my husband and I got married right after undergrad and then, um, a year later we went off to Scotland and did, he did his master's of divinity and I did a master's of English and then started my PhD. So we lived in Scotland for three years, moved back to the States after he was finished and took a pastoral position. Um, and I taught at a kind of startup Christian college in California for a few years while, and then it took me probably about a total of about nine years to finish the PhD. Cause I just took a year off every time I had a baby and yeah. it took a village to to make that happen. I think I realized at one point, if I don't finish this year, I will have to not get the PhD. And I've spent like a third of my life. So I, right, <laughs> I right. just need to get it done. So it was, it was much more an exercise in uh, just finishing and perseverance. Did but, you have examples yeah. of people around you? who had achieved like the highest level of academic success or do you, do you know, do you remember where you first saw Mm. that and said, okay, this is what I want to do for myself. Yeah. Marilyn McIntyre, who's published um, lots of books um, in medical humanities and um, in care of words. Uh, She was one of my undergrad professors. And so Mm. I, I just loved her classes and, and I, yeah, I saw her, as definitely a role model of thoughtful engagement and a strong faith and um, yeah, like a mentorship. Um, And then my PhD supervisor was incredibly brilliant. She would come and like grab books off shelves and like open them and know what, you know, (laughs) what they said. (laughs) She had like this photographic memory that I was like, I will never get there. But it was also wonderful to see her. She was a mother of three and to see that you know, she didn't leave behind an ordinary life for an academic one. And talk to me a little bit about just the journey of being a mom. I, the reason I'm asking is yeah. because I deeply relate to it. I am somebody who I always wanted kids, but it wasn't um, like my dream. It, it, right. it was, I don't remember being younger and like, oh, I, my sister, her boyfriend at the time, I just want to marry him and have his kids. And right. that was her dream. And I, I never resonated with that. And then I got pregnant on my honeymoon. <laughs> And so I was into a PhD program and it just was never part of my plan for myself to have a baby in that process. And I did. And and I had three kids throughout my PhD program and it was literally the darkest years of my entire life. So I want you to speak into that for a second. If there's somebody on here who, Mm -hmm. you know, things did not quite go as planned and you feel like I have to quit or I have to give up. And so I love actually the story of you saying, no, this took me nine years Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I fought through and now I'm here. Yeah. You know, and I think what was hard too is because I haven't really had like a traditional academic career since then um, to feel like my education wasn't worth it. Because I think oftentimes we think, you know, that because we're spending so much time and money and attention and care in a graduate program, let's say, 
that unless it reaps some sort of financial reward or like, you know, you get the tenure track position or whatever, that it's not worth it. Um, and thankfully, my husband continued to speak life and remind me like, no, like this is worth it. It doesn't have to have you know, Ashley, I love him. I love him. I know that he says that to you. you. That makes me want to cry. I know. Um, and you know, I think in some ways I feel like now some of my work, I'm being kind of welcomed back, you know, around the corner to some of those conversations and questions again, which has been a gift, but I think the motherhood piece anyway, has really helped me to temper some of my expectations on the degree or what I thought my life would look like. Um, and I think that's God's a good gift. I think sometimes that humility and the sense of actually God's the one in control of my life and I don't get to call the shots is is a gift no matter how it comes. And some of us need some of us need more children or more, <laughs> you know, like hard things that come into our lives to begin to help us reimagine what a good life looks like. So Can I say yeah, this. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you, do you think, maybe this is a controversial question. I promise I don't mean it to be. However, I've spent time thinking about this myself because uh-huh. uh, my husband was pastoring for the last several years. He's he's not right at this moment, but it just seemed like because he was a man, mm-hmm. it was much more difficult for him to make a spacious life because for whatever societal or whatever the background, whatever the conversation or whatever was in his mind, it was rare for him to say no. Whereas for me, Mm -hmm. maybe it's cultural and it has nothing to do with our personalities, but it just is not an option for me to not pick up my kids from school. That is never going to be an option, right? Right. And so I have to say no to opportunities in my career because Mm -hmm. somebody's got to pick up these kids from school. So do you think in some ways, this is, I have found it to be like Mm -hmm. kind of I know it's the invisible load, but also a blessing for my spirituality, Mm -hmm. my womanhood, Mm -hmm. in the sense of the things that I naturally am more able and inclined to say no, Mm -hmm. because I want to protect the space in my life and I want to protect my children. And in some ways, I think that's a gift. I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think I fought that for a long time. Like, this is not fair. Like, and it's not home. <laughs> right. Please yeah. don't yeah. hear me. It is right. not. Right, right. Um, but I think really, you know, socially and societally, like the only good life that we have held up to be like the full life is one that is full of efficiency and productivity and yeah. has something to show for it out in the public sphere. Like you know, we can see that even with the COVID pandemic, you know, the teachers and the healthcare workers and everyone who's on the front lines, like those institutions are cracking right now. And yet, like, we don't actually value, you know, that work um, or childcare, for instance, um, right? In socially acceptable terms, right? We don't, we don't pay childcare workers well, um, for instance. And so I think it's just, it's so countercultural to say, you know, the work I'm doing paid and unpaid. All of it matters. Um, Yes. And all of it is formative and all of it is for my good and for the good of my neighbor and can glorify God. But everything around us, right, kind of privileges, you know, what you can show for it, you know, from a career perspective or from a financial perspective. And we don't have any we don't have any good models really of like, what does it look like to live a whole more of a holistic, seamless yeah. life? Um, hopefully the church will be able to get, begin again to like talk back to that. Um, We're supposed that, to be countercultural, yes, right? <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief. 
an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. How do you think social media disrupts these healthy rhythms that you're trying to help people start creating? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it has got to be, you know, just our our dopamine addiction, of course, you know, and, you know, right. we pull out our phones at every second. Um, and so we do have to figure out ways in which we can engage on social media. But, you know, when we're calling the shots and not just like as a reflex, I think is probably the biggest thing. Um, and then, yeah, choosing choosing to maybe not say things, the discipline of silence on social media can be really good too. Um, you know, you don't have to weigh in on every Twitter battle. Like right. you are not the voice of that's going to finally change that one troll. Like you don't have to engage. Um, you don't also need to comment on every possible thing that comes up through the news cycle. I think is just giving us, giving ourselves that space. Like, we don't have to comment on everything um, might be. And, you know, having, I'm not great at this, but like set times to engage with social media and maybe like after you read your Bible and go for a walk and like talk to a real human being yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. on the screen. Um, but some of those sorts of rhythms so that it finds its proper place, I think, because I've met great people on social media and it's been so encouraging to engage with readers or other thinkers. But um, yeah, to begin to see it as a tool instead of where I go to numb pain or boredom. It, yeah. I have a chapter on the book about putting Jesus isn't on Instagram. So it's kind of funny. I'm, I'm excited to yeah have this conversation. <laughs> Talk to me about the chapter. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, um, what is really interesting about social media is that it gives us the illusion that we are not bodies and places and time, right? It gives us the sense that we can yes. be everywhere. Like we can be God <laughs> um, yeah. because we can have conversations. Why have I never thought of this before? <laughs> Thank you. Keep going. I'm yeah, just, yeah. you're opening my eyes right now as you're saying it. <laughs> so, you know, I think like we can be having conversations with someone in Australia and like we can be commenting on someone we know or feel connected to, even if we don't actually know them in Ohio. And there's so many different, ways in which we can feel we are part of communities. And part of that is beautiful and lovely and so cool to be able to have like affinity groups that stretch across time and space. But we have to realize there is a temptation in being on social media or media of any kind, really, that allows us to think we're in control because we can pick whatever we want and we can shut it down and we can 
be rude online or, or what have you. And also that we are not actually contingent human beings, right? That we're not bound by our places and our times and our emotions and our callings and our bodies um, when we're online. So we just need to at least be aware of that reality. Like Jesus walked around places. He had a really small circle, right, in which to move. And he changed the world. And yeah, he was God. <laughs> but like, nevertheless, I think we have to hold social media intention with being present to our actual people and places and communities and churches, because a lot of the growth that we see actually happens through those challenges of being with people that we wouldn't necessarily be friends with, like in the church or have are from a different generation or race or socioeconomic status, that it's as we are like are working closely that we're shift, we shift and change too. This is really just making me think because we would never show up to our real lives thinking that we have to be with somebody all the time or have to be a part of every conversation. You just wouldn't. Right. If you were at a party in a room, you would never jump into every single conversation. (laughs) Right. And yet the temptation to do that online is so real and makes a book like A Spacious Life, I think, even more necessary because we want to be all things to all people at all times. Right. And we can't. We're not machines. And um, we're not and, machines. Yeah. And however, wait, Ashley, because I teach social media. And so one yeah. of the things that I say all the time is, you guys, it's a lot just about consistency. And I do, mm-hmm. and this is true. Just you keep showing up and eventually something's going to stick. It's just yeah. the reality. And yet, so what would you say back to me, okay? You're in my <laughs> class and I say, you guys, it's just consistency. You got to keep showing up. And you're like, ah, excuse me, actually, <laughs> we need an absence. What does that look like for somebody in reality who maybe mm-hmm. hasn't gotten a book deal, right? Yeah. And they know that they have to keep doing the social media game in order to get there. What do you say to that? Yeah, I would say schedule it out. Like make it part of your yes. job. You know, like do it. Yes. But like you are not at the whims of the social media algorithms, you know, like you can do your best to make it work for you. And I think, you know, what you're saying is like, show up. It doesn't mean you have to have this attitude of like, yeah, like you can pay attention to your stats and stuff, but not like having more followers or, or losing followers should not depress you. (laughs) Mm. You know, like how much are we like associating our emotional or spiritual well-being based on those metrics. Um, and yeah. How much? I w- what do you yeah. think? I think that's kind of, I mean, it's designed, to, right? To like, no, right? It's designed to it's capture so our attention and um, to, to engage social media well, we have to be able to realize like, right. The, what was that in the social dilemma movie, right? Where they were saying like, if, if there's not a product to buy, like you're the product. <laughs> yes. That was um, quite the line. Yeah, I was like, oh gosh. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, to find ways in which we can make it u- useful as a tool, schedule it, and yeah, maybe a monthly check in where you're like, okay, what is my emotional state based on, you know, these sorts of metrics? Yeah. And know when you got to get off. And yeah. I, I think yeah. for me, I, I do a social media Sabbath every single week yep. where I don't log on for 24 hours. And yep. it's really weird how always at the end of that 24 hours, I don't even need to log on again. Yeah. Within about 24 hours, my brain's like, this actually doesn't matter as much as right. you feel like it matters right. when you're opening and closing it. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. And uh, like um, Andy Crouch's book, 
yes. uh, the TechWise family. TechWise yeah. life. Yeah. Where he talks about, yeah, a 24 hour and a one hour a night, one day a week, and one week a year off. And I think those are those are good rhythms too. I love that. Tell us a little bit about your publishing journey. Was it easy for you? Did the doors just magically swing open <laughs> for you? Or was it kind of like a drag out fight, like the PhD program? What did yes. it look like? So I started writing, like blogging. It was past the heyday of blogging, but I just needed a, I was with my fourth child and neck, you know, elbow deep in diapers and preschool drop-offs. And I'm like- Years of my life (laughs) spent with poop on my hands. I I try to explain to people the mental toll it takes for eight years. Uh I I wiped poop. I know. Yeah. It's great. (laughs) And you're like, I'm glad I have a PhD to to wipe poop. (laughs) It changes you. (laughs) But you're like, you know what? I am a human. It's good. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And so, but I think the- so I started writing online like in 2014, 2013, because I was exhausted and I needed just an outlet to play. And so I started blogging and just processing my life. Um, and then, and I went to the Calvin's Festival of Faith and Writing um, and became part of Redbud Writers Guild. And so there were a few things like that, that I felt like, oh, good. I have like a camaraderie of people um, mm-hmm. that felt like I wasn't alone. And then through, um, actually a friendship with another author, Jen Pollock, Michelle, she introduced me to her then current editor at university press. So, um, and then that, th- at that point we had moved from Utah back home to, um, Southern California in the, in suburbia. And I'd always been fascinated by place and belonging. And so my first book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, kind of came out of that move and that journey as well. How important would you say it is to go to writing conferences? I just, I heard you mention that. We talked to Karen Swallow Pryor um, this week as well. And she, I know, is a big fan of saying yeah. people that want to be writers go to the writing conferences. You think that that's important? I do. I think, I think it's great because, you know, you can join various kind of writing guilds and groups and online things that are helpful. Um, but I think there's just something great about being in one place you know, with the serendipity of potential, you know, meeting mm. not just editors or, you know, gatekeepers, but also other writers that absolutely, you know, that in a small group that you may not have expected. So I think, you know, if there is a return to conferences and all of that, I think, yeah, those those were definitely worth it. All those in between times were as worth it as as much as the sessions. What has been hardest for you about building online community or about building online platform to sell the books that you feel called to write all of this that goes together that makes authors say you know this isn't necessary you know it's such a different thing I think to yeah. be a writer and to be a person who loves social media I think yes. those are two very different practices so what's been the most difficult part of that for you I think um I mean there's lots of things that are really difficult about that combination um, I like, like, I like social media. Um, I was speaking to another writer friend a while ago and, and we were talking about newsletters and, you know, all of these things that you need to do to kind of keep up your presence online. And she was like, I think actually you want to engage in social media. Like you want that, that feedback more than like, you know, just simply like hiding behind your computer. And so mm-hmm. not that newsletters aren't important, but you know, she's like, I think you actually want to focus there. And that was really freeing to me because I think a lot of times we can think of social media as just icky and smarmy and marketing. Um, and like, if we we're really a real true writer, we wouldn't 
be on social media. <laughs> you know, we'd be in our cabin in the woods. And so right. I think some of it is just combating some of those lies, you know, uh, about this solitary writer. And, and I think for me, just practically what's challenging is just choosing to show up, choosing to like stay in my lane and not compare myself to yes. friends who have just like exploded, um, you know, or choosing to say, I know I could probably figure out this algorithm better and grow a lot more quickly if I just focused on like one thing, but I don't want to. So I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and that's good. Be yeah. true to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing this new thing this season where I'm asking people online if they could ask you something, what would they ask? And Amanda Held Opet, Opelt says, I'm almost done with her fabulous book, A Spacious Life. I'd love to hear Ashley talk about balancing breadth and depth when it comes to relationships. I find myself wanting to invest in lots of friendships, but struggle to go deeper with folks because I'm spread so thin. Mm, that's good. Um, I, you know, I am the kind of girl who likes to jump at the deep end of the pool. So I like I've always probably enjoyed deeper friendships and fewer of them than a ton mm. of kind of casual acquaintances. What was really fascinating, I think, about the beginning of the pandemic where, you know, we were just kind of like stuck in our homes for months on end is <laughs> like I missed, I found I actually like I missed those acquaintances that I would talk with when I dropped my kids off at school. Like I missed, you know, chatting with the neighbor about stuff that didn't matter. And it was really helpful for me at least to be like, oh, it doesn't have to be deep all the time. And we need those, yes. those different levels of relationship. Um, and we really had cut out those middle kind of acquaintances, especially in the beginning of the pandemic. And we need those for our society to function. So I don't want to say like only do one or do the other, but I would just encourage folks maybe to think about, well, who are maybe like two or three people that you can invest in? Maybe a quarter or, you know, because a year feels like, Ooh, that's less long. Um, but maybe it's <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, these people seem receptive to me. Um, and maybe God's calling me to, to go deeper with them. Um, I think also we've moved a lot and that has necessitated kind of that we have been focused on the folks that are like in our actual lives face to face. Um, and so to realize too, that there are different, you know, if you're in one place for a long time, you're probably amassing lots of different friendships. But I think that maybe even just thinking of if, you know, if I'm here for a long time, who would be the people that I would want, you know, that I would call when my kid has an emergency or we have, you know, been hit upside the head with some suffering. Who do I want to invest in? now that feels like someone's safe in those times. I absolutely love your response. And I love that you said that there's value in, in communication, we would call them a weak tie. Mm -hmm. What you're saying, I don't know, yeah. I don't know if you know, no. but the yeah. studies yeah. say what you said is absolutely right on the money that we always think I have to have this really deep friendship in order for it to count. Mm -hmm. And actually the research says 
lots of those little friendships that what we'd call weak ties, the person just, I eat a lot at restaurants. And so they know me at yeah. almost every restaurant in this yeah. small town that I go to. And so surely at the diner in town, if I, if I'm not there for a few weeks, she'll, when I walk in, she'll say, where have you been? I haven't yeah, seen you in a couple weeks. Yeah. The Shirley's, those weak ties are actually more beneficial to our life than having just a, a few really, really deep friendship. So mm-hmm. having lots of weekdays is not a bad thing. Yeah. That's and I'm great. really glad that you said that because <laughs> people, you know, I just don't right. think that's something pe- a lot of people understand. No, okay. no. That's um, great. K-L-N-G-N-H-P says if she could read one of her favorite books again for the first time, right? So experience everything that you experienced mm. the first time again, what book would that be? Mm. Probably Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. Why? It's... It's the story of a very old man who's a pastor in a very small town dying and writing his like five year old son. So it's it's super uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's it's <laughs> it's a beautiful story of family and loss and reckoning with your yeah, your own death and you know what lives on beyond you. And I would like, yeah, love to read those beautiful sentences again for the first time. Ashley Howells is a writer, speaker, and host of the Finding Holy podcast. Her latest book is called A Spacious Life, Trading Hustle and Hurry for the Goodness of Limits, which you can get wherever books are sold. And I really do think that this book is a message that so many of us need to hear, especially in just like an oversaturated time and culture of social media and all of the stuff that keeps us going. Ashley, I end every interview by asking my guest a question that is going to sound very intimidating, but I promise it is not, okay? Our show is called Viral Jesus for a Reason. Virtually all credible historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, agree that there is plenty of evidence that there was, in fact, a man named Jesus who lived and walked this earth 2,000 years ago. How can we, 2,000 years later, best communicate who Jesus was and what his mission is for us today? Mm, That is a very big question. Um, you know, I think Jesus told us, right, that we would know, we would know people are Christians by our love, right? And by, but the fruit that would, that would speak. So, you know, coming back full circle to the, you know, the idea about tilling the soil, I think is is like a real author going back to the beginning. Very good. (laughs) Um, you know, like that we need to consider, you know, I think often we we are always very concerned about the fruit, but the only good fruit comes from good soil and good nutrients. Yes. And so something small might be, you know, to begin to ask yourselves, how am I tilling the soil? How am I planting good seeds? How am I making space for the spirit to work so that good fruit comes out? And wouldn't it be amazing if we were known by our love instead of our vitriol? It'd be great. <laughs> Thanks, Ashley Hales, for joining us for this episode. We like to end every episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral, and this is where I give you some direct strategies you can implement into your real life that will help you be a better communicator and connector both online and off. Here is your Growing Viral homework. Friend, we have got to slow down. I've been talking to my therapist lately about what self-care means. 
And she said, Heather, self-care is something that makes you feel better after doing it. So while I would typically say that watching an entire season of Survivor in a single day, I would do that and say, well, this is my self-care time. Guess what? I don't feel better after I do that. In fact, I think I feel worse. And so I realized, okay, for me, that's not self-care. But when I slow down for people, when I pay attention to the people who are around me, when I go for a run, when I read a book, when I listen to a podcast, when I go visit my grandma at assisted living, I always feel better afterward. We can't be people who are literally hurrying past each other. We need present hearts in order to be present with each other. We need to take care of ourselves so we can take care of each other. Do something this week that makes you feel better afterwards. Do something this week that allows you to live a more spacious life. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Next week, we are talking to a book publicist. So if you are a writer or content creator and are looking for some tips and some encouragement, I cannot wait to introduce you to my friend, Katie Schnack. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a viral Jesus guest talks and you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.